0: All right, everyone. So, again, this is Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director um, of MitoAction, and we're just going to be talking a little bit about diagnostic testing for mitochondrial disease on our autism call today. Um, I do want to just preface everything with the common sense note that um, I'm not your doctor, nor am I a physician, and so I encourage you to, you know, take this for what it is meant to be, which is information for you to go back and learn more about and make sense of yourself and ask questions and have conversations with your pediatrician or specialists, rather than you know, taking this as information that you would act on yourself. Um, and if you have any more questions, you can always reach out to us and we can try to talk further about this. But we're going to kind of start from the ground up, I think, in terms of understanding <clears throat> about testing. And this is informal because this is just, just me um, you know, sharing what we've prepared with you. So I encourage you guys to jump in and stop me and ask some questions um, also as we go um, along the way. Um, I, I want to start by saying that for a long time a muscle biopsy was the really considered the only way that you could diagnose mitochondrial disease. And so a muscle biopsy is where they actually take a piece of tissue, typically from the thigh, and um, look at the activity of the processes that make mitochondria in that piece of tissue. Um, when you have a, a muscle biopsy, then it's invasive. Um, for children, it requires anesthesia, which for mito patients or anyone with mitochondrial dysfunction, um, autism or not, it has a certain degree of risk. Um, it slows down the mitochondrial function even further and is very expensive and so you know for many years it was probably the case that we were overlooking a large percentage of um, children with mitochondrial disease because we simply could not send everyone that we thought had those red flags off for a muscle biopsy and so we were really only catching kind of you know if we're throwing out the net we're only catching the biggest fish if you will and now things are changing, and this is all very new that things are changing so to give you i mean to give you that perspective, it was in the eighties that mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial medicine was really coined as a field and a term and then it wasn't until the nineties that we even started to know that mitochondrial disease could be inherited in any other way than from the mother's mitochondrial DNA um, Now we know that Mitochondrial disease in children is most often inherited in a what's called a nuclear DNA um, inheritance pattern, which means that typically there are um, like cystic fibrosis, for example, and some other genetic diseases, there are both parents have a carrier gene that affects the function of mitochond- of the mitochondria, and so then the child Inherits it that way. There are even adults who could have inherited this way who maybe had soft symptoms their whole life and never really was able to, um, you know, have anything serious enough to have a diagnosis or were misdiagnosed. But for our kids with autism, um, what we don't know is exactly what gene we're looking for. So I think that's important to understand, too, is that it's not like you're missing some vital piece of information and if you only knew how to test for that gene, you would know how to be. You know, identified that it is really complex, and that's part of what makes it challenging to diagnose um, the disease is that you're you have to really kind of look at a broad spectrum um, to understand so you know that brings up the point of do people want a diagnosis and so forth and for some people with mitochondrial disease, then um, they feel that they don't need a diagnosis because um you know, they can, maybe they have a neurologist and they have enough um, solid symptoms that they found someone who can put them on the supplements and and they don't really need to go any further. I get the impression from most of you guys who are parents of kids who have autism that that, that, that doesn't happen for you guys. Um, that because of this existing co-diagnosis of autism or ASD or Asperger's, et cetera, that um, that that tends to overshadow the other piece, and you really have to be a great advocate in kind of pointing out that there are these other issues that aren't making sense because the behavioral piece or the regression piece tends to kind of be dominant on what people's focus is. As a group, would you guys say that that has been your experience too? Do you feel like you have to be your own advocate because of that? Absolutely.
1: Yes, very much so.
0: Definitely.
2: If it weren't for me, my kids wouldn't be healed. (laughs) Um,
0: So when we we think about then testing now, the good news is that it's not always just about a muscle biopsy anymore, which, you know, I mean, even as little as I'd say five years ago, that's what everybody was doing is if you wanted to get diagnosed, then boom, you needed to have that muscle biopsy, which was a significant um, cost and invasive test. And so we didn't really have anything kind of too much in the meantime to help us screen to even get to that point. Um, We're doing better with that. And like I said, now we know that most children in particular inherit this disease from both parents on nuclear um, DNA, which are nuclear genes, meaning they come from both parents. However, there are over 1,000 nuclear genes, and yet we can only identify um, a couple hundred of those. So we don't know all of those genes associated with mitochondrial disease. We only know a couple hundred. Are there more? Definitely. Are there more associated with specific syndromes? Definitely. Do we know what those are? No. We can't match those two together yet. And so um, that's a lot of what the research is kind of pointed to these days is, okay, we identified this one nuclear gene and we can kind of classically identify some symptoms that go with it, or if we look at these kids and we test for this type of gene and this group of kids that has autism, can we find that a lot of them have a, a defect in that? That's what the research is looking at a lot today. So I want to kind of give you the, the bird's eye view first and say that um, we typically think about diagnosing mitochondrial disease from a three-pronged approach. Prong one is the symptoms and clinical presentation. Prong two is biochemical and metabolic testing. Those are like your blood tests, as well as um, imaging, like MRI. And part three is what's called molecular and histological testing. And so that would be what we get um, where we are doing skin or muscle biopsy or we're looking at the, um, the tissue or the DNA sequencing. Let me um, talk a little bit about each of those, and feel free to stop me at any point if you have a question or need me to to stop and clarify. When we talk about symptoms and clinical presentation, then this is the area where a lot of people say, well, what what does that mean for my child with autism? Well, for your child with autism, then um, we kind of can think of it as red flags, and there's a, a very good if not intimidating and comprehensive list of red flags that you can look at that's on the um, Mitochondrial Medicine Society website. And that website is mitosoc.org, so like short for org. That's a group of um, leading clinicians and researchers who are also trying to, I think, convey this information um, to other physicians, be a great place to direct your physician if they are willing or interested to learn a little bit more. But you'll see some of those red flags. And and some of those are tests. Um, for example, an elevated lactic acid or an elevated alanine level, which would be measured by blood or which would be measured by um, urine organic acids, which are tests that you can do. And we're going to hit a little bit um, in our highlights today, and some of those are symptoms, and a symptom is something that your child, um, you know, feels or that you can describe as the patient experience, so your child doesn't say, I have lactic acidosis, your child says, I have a headache or I have constipation, so um, what what is it that you are feeling? And so some of those red flags, I would say, that are unusual for kids with autism, but Typical for kids with mito, so that creates kind of this hmm, maybe we should look more into the mito side of things. Are uh, low muscle tone, um, we call that hypotonia, um, th- uh, regression with an illness or difficulty recovering from an illness, um, particularly an illness with a fever. You know, low stamina and fatigue are hallmark characteristics of mitochondrial disease. And need to be remembered for kids who are on the spectrum, particularly it needs to be recognized that low stamina and fatigue doesn't mean that the child just peacefully curls up in a ball and falls asleep that That also can mean that the child is irritable, um, avoidant, can't make eye contact, is you know uncooperative because they're so tired, you know, especially if you can notice that as like the day or the activity level or the expectations of them are greater. Um, so those are some of the a few red flags. Another red flag that um is a tough one because there are, are lots of kids with you know, a whole other side of autism is the nutrition and allergy kind of side. But the dysmotility, which is having difficulty digesting food and um like Beth was saying, you know, chronic const- Constipation or just you know really slow processing, and then kids who get behind on their nutrition and their hydration because of that that's a real problem, and that's a more common symptom for mitochondrial disease as well um, all of those can you can kind of think of that also as this idea of the autonomic nervous system isn't working effectively because it takes so much energy. So from a mitochondrial disease perspective, what's happening is your body isn't making energy at the rate that it should, and so your um, autonomic nervous system, which should control things like how you digest food or how well you're able to keep a normal body temperature, even if it's hot outside, or how well you're able to keep up your stamina and so forth, um, your blood pressure, your heart rate, etc., doesn't happen because that is... I'm um, getting shorted out, if you will, by the lack of energy. So um, when we talk about biochemical and metabolic testing, then we start to get into some more specifics. There, on this website that I mentioned before, there are some screening labs that are um, recommending recommended. And part of the idea of this group is not to ask you guys to all run out and go, you know, um, lab shopping so that you can order a bunch of tests, but so that you know what some of those tests are because maybe there are some things that could be easily or more routinely screened wherever you live right now with the help of your neurologist or your even your um, Dan doctor or your pediatrician or developmental pediatrician that then could get you referred to the right place so that you could see that geneticist or you could see that metabolic physician or that neurologist who specializes in mitochondrial disease um, to talk a little bit about why these tests were not normal, if that's the case.
1: And Christy, oh. you said the website, I'm sorry to interrupt, was uh, mitosoc.org, dot org correct. Yes, okay, correct. thank you. I'm going to log on right
2: now and look at it.
0: Yeah, no problem. Anybody else have questions or comments before I start kind of listing through this?
2: I, I have a question back. This is Carol. Um Back with the uh, muscle tone, um, my daughter uh, always had terrible muscle tone. In fact, when she hit first grade, the OT said she'd never seen such bad muscle tone outside of cerebral palsy. Me too, my mother too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're like floppy people,
3: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> and uh, and so you know, as a person who always was tired for no. Reason that people understood. Um, I mean, I literally have had tears flowing down my face as you've been talking because what you're describing is me and my family, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, she had no pupillary reflex when she had trouble learning how to read in first grade. She looked like a normal child, but her teacher thought she was just a discipline problem because she was, quote, unmotivated. Well,
3: mm-hmm.
2: She was too tired, you know, mm-hmm. and then it took a very special uh, physical therapist who recognized she had no pupillary reflex. Give me a break. How can you learn how to f- how to read if you can't focus your eyes? These are things we don't even consider when right. testing children. Uh, so I don't know what my question is. <laughs> well, so just,
0: it sounds like, um, you know, you bring up a great point, which is that when you, when you get confused about the symptoms of mitochondrial disease and you're overwhelmed by this information and it doesn't make any sense, go back to the idea that all of this is happening because the areas of the body that require the most energy are not getting enough. Your eyes, for example, take an incredible amount of energy to function, as does the brain and central nervous system, your muscles, your gut, and your heart, so your skin doesn't require an awful lot of energy to kind of do what it does, all right? Um, Your kidneys are important, but they require less energy than some other organ systems of the body. So if you go back to that idea of making sense of the symptoms because you're understanding which areas of the body require the most energy, then it can help you make a little bit more sense, and the the eyes are one of those that are often overlooked. Thanks so much. Um, Any other questions or comments before I talk about the screening labs?
4: Uh, Christy, this is Patty. I just wanted to add some from our experience about testing. Great. Go ahead, Patty. Uh, So you you mentioned, like, having Dan doctors or neurologists and stuff like that, so that's that's obviously a good option. We have now I think it's more commonplace to associate mitochondrial dysfunction with developmental delays and autism and things like that. Maybe a couple of years ago, people would just stare at you and things like that if you kind of brought the two together. So one of the things that we found was to not kind of bring up, like, say, autism or things like that, but other metabolic biomarkers that might have come off in, in, in your regular CBCs and stuff to go persuade or, or tell your pediatrician or your specialist that either you need to see a metabolic expert, and there's a caveat there, as you might know, that metabolic experts are usually very busy and you don't get an appointment uh, for a good six months sometimes. Exactly. So obviously the, half the pediatrician writes some basic metabolic screening tests, and obviously we can't talk about which which tests would be applicable to who, but I'm sure the pediatrician, if you talk about mitochondrial dysfunctions and also reference some of the research studies that point to uh, or, or kind of implicate mitochondrial dysfunction in, um, in, in autism and development delays that might get you to get the pediatrician to help you more.
0: And there's a list on that mitosos.org website, which I think sometimes referring your pediatrician to an outside you know, source other than you um, might be helpful also, would you would you agree, Patty?
4: Yeah, I think so. If there's a list, and um, yes, certainly. You know, um, because I think it's now people are understanding. Christy, is is what I'm uh, getting um, uh, seeing that more doctors are kind of seeing the link. And and there was this Dr. Rosinal's paper. I don't know, Christy, if you've seen that. That kind of did a meta study on all mitochondrial and autism kind of connection.
3: Have mm-hmm. you, that
4: that that the, there are studies like that that can be used as well.
0: Um, that's that's great, and, you know, when we build the abstracts, Patty, we'll, we'll find that one and include that. Um,
1: it's Dan Rosignol if you wanted to know. Yeah. Uh,
0: okay, great. Anybody else have any comments or questions to add? And we'll, I'll, I'll go through some of these te- um, tests, which are also on that website. Um, okay, great. Uh, let me preface this by saying that... Um, You know, I'm not going to be able to identify for you kind of the norms for each of these labs, nor do I think as a parent at this point you really need to worry yourself with that. I just think that at this point you're kind of trying to understand what they're screening for of all the possible things to be looking at. Um, So remember when I was talking about that three-pronged approach, the first prong is... Uh, symptoms and clinical presentation. The second piece is biochemical and metabolic testing. And the third piece is molecular and histological testing. And molecular testing means you look at the genes to detect abnormalities. And histological testing means you look at the tissues. Um, And enzymology means you look at the biological activity, um, for example, in those tissues. So let's talk about the biochemical and metabolic testing, which typically can be um, blood and urine tests. And the great piece about that is that as we get better at interpreting those tests, then um, that's exciting, right? Because we're not having to do any invasive testing right off the bat. So this is the list that is identified on the mitochondrial medicine society, looking at your CMP, which is your basic chemistries, liver function, so that's liver enzymes, ammonia levels, a complete blood count, creatine kinase levels, blood lactate, pyruvate in the blood, and that's also called serum lactate or serum pyruvate. That means the same thing as blood. Um, Qualitative plasma amino acids and the plasma acetylcarnitine profile. Uh, And then in the urine, looking at the quantitative urinary organic acids, free and total carnitine, um I'm sorry, and then I'm sorry, and then also in the plasma looking at free and total carnitine, coq10, and um and then there's some other very specific um ways to try to measure B12 status and um spe- unique to this group is the HBA1C um because that's something having to do with uh, insulin resistance and hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, which is kind of counterpart to mitochondrial dysfunction. There's a lot of research about the relationship between type 2 diabetes and mitochondrial dysfunction. so. Um, HB as in boy? Yes. Okay. And this is listed on the website as well. And I'm gonna put all this in the summary that Alyssa's been um working with me on as well. Alyssa, are you on by the chance? Okay. Um there are some it by urine also there are um urine amino acids and just urinalysis, but most typically it's those urinary organic acids that you're looking for. Um One thing that we always look for on those urinary organic acids is an elevated alanine level. That's A-L-A-N-I-N-E. It's one of those red flags that we talked about before that's a test. And um, not all children have an elevated lactate level, but we look at those, you know, remember I mentioned blood lactate and blood pyruvate, those are two... Um, byproducts of the process of making energy in the mitochondria and they get elevated when there's an inefficiency of making the ATP, which is the energy. And so there's too much of those and so they get elevated. So we can look at those, but they're not always elevated. So another thing to test for is an abnormal lactate to pyruvate ratio. Um, and like I said, don't don't worry if this is kind of news to you because we're going to have it written out for you as well. But those are kind of the, the basics. Now what we're learning, though, is I think that there are some more tests. And so we were looking at some specific studies to talk about um, that would help identify additional tests that might, for this group of kids with autism who don't always kind of test for the standard, you know, right off the bat. Um, On the metabolic labs, they aren't always typically abnormal the way that, say, a um, person with more mitochondrial dysfunction or maybe it's mitochondrial dysfunction that's surfacing in a different way would be. Then we also look at, um, there was a study that said that if, if there were 100 children with autism that were evaluated for, blood carnitine levels, The 83% of those had carnitine levels below the norm. Um, so that study is very suggestive that the majority of autistic children could have a relative carnitine deficiency. So that's another piece that's, I think, important for um, this group as well. Has anybody had um, carnitine testing done? Would you be willing to share a little bit about that?
1: I've had everything tested. I it would take me a minute to get my testing out, but um I know carnitine was low.
0: Okay. And and so um did that prompt you guys to start carnitine?
1: Um, well, right now we're waiting for. We have an appointment with our Dan doctor on Monday. Okay. I don't like to te- do anything without talking with them first and saying, should I start this or should I not start it?
0: Sure, I just and, and, I, and like I was also wondering if or, they had started it right. I, and I've, I don't like to
1: skew it if they want to retest it. I don't want to add it and then have it elevated or have it the level low. I like to keep it where it is and let them tell me what to add.
0: And you know, the, you bring up another point, which is that. Um, some people, you know, may be already using supplements, and then when you get around to doing this metabolic testing, it can influence the test result. So um, it may make it appear normal or falsely elevated. So what we want to do is be sure that if you're having any of this testing that um, that you're not on those supplements at that time. Um, most mito patients... Sorry. Think- um, do you know how long they would have to be off before... Um, you get you an know, extra read. You know, um, I want to double check on that for you, but my thought is six to eight weeks. Yeah. Okay. Do um, you just
5: watch them regress and lose everything for? That's
0: the that's <laughs> the difficult. That's the hard part, I think, about sp- okay. now. There, but keep in mind that there are other things that you could be testing for, like the um, alanine levels, for example, and the lactate to pyrate ratio that may not be improved by something like carnitine. When they they do a
5: CMP, is that part of, um, is that just a standard thing where they do that ratio? Or is that something that... No, it's a
0: specific test. The CMP is going to list, you know, your chemistry. So that's a pretty basic test that just includes a few other things. Sometimes um, the CO2 level might be off, but not, you know, not always. So that might just be um, a basic screening. But the lactate and pyruvate are specific tests that have to be ordered And in fact, while we're talking about that, let me throw in that um, a lactate can be um, mishandled very easily. So it's very important that when you're taking a blood lactate level, that the blood is taken without a tourniquet on the arm. Hmm. So um, it's also important that those levels can be um, falsely, you know, changed if there is a lot of struggling, you know, and in kids, it's not easy to take a blood sample, you know, um, that way. So whatever you're doing, it's important that the kids are not moving around a lot and that you get a really good sample and that it's not tourniqueted. So what they do is they they might use the tourniquet to um, find the vein, but take it off, wait a period of time, and then they do the the stick without using the tourniquet to get that um, lactate level, and uh, and then it has to be handled appropriately. There are specific um, instructions that labs have that you just need to follow um, specifically for how to handle that, because if you you know if you just go in and then you're just like. Um, Oh, let's get a lactate and pyruvate along with the C B C and then everybody you got a big tourniquet on the arm, the lactate's the last thing that they draw. It can be um changed and it also needs to be the pyruvate needs to be iced immediately. So it's one of those things that's very sensitive. So, um
1: well, I'll jump in and ask the question. What what impact does a tourniquet have? did it what did it do that adversely impacts the blood draw?
0: You know, um I hope I'm not I'm speaking off the top of my head here so That's fine. I'm, i I want to go back and double check but my my if I recall it lyses the cells
3: okay.
0: and um can abnormally elevate the level of lactate okay. um, because it's tourniqueted because when you um are drawing that through the tourniquet then the cells have to go through a um, tighter space you know so it mm-hmm. it's, it lyses them which is like squeezes or strips them, and then can abnormally um, affect that lactate level.
4: Hey, Christy, can I add something to my uh, science kind of education background? So lactic acid is a byproduct of uh, anaerobic respiration. So when cells don't have enough oxygen and they have to create energy, then a byproduct, meaning in a typical sense, if the oxygen is enough, then you should just get CO2 and H2O when you burn um, um, carbohydrates. But when you don't have enough O2, then you get lactic acid, which is the cause of cramps when you're working out too heavy. So now think of the tourniquet and a struggling kid when drawing the blood. Then the muscles in the arm are working really heavy. They are lysed, as Christy pointed out and and um and the oxygen required for the energy of the struggle and all might be less which might make those cells that are fighting in the muscles there to generate more lactic acid.
0: Patty, so what a great explanation. Thank you.
2: Well, and it brings up something that I knew too, Carol. Oh. Um the the first miracle in my kids' lives, the second miracle, I guess, was getting to be in the in the Research that developed spectra cell testing, and they found, and in that research, uh, they they said it took six to six weeks to three months to get the cells charged up with the missing nutrients. Also, it was emphasized uh, by my nutritional counselor that you don't want to just take individual B vitamins because they can throw the balance of B vitamins off. And then there's the aspect that one thing that I found out in that testing was that my chronic yawn that I'd had my whole life was due to B6 deficiency because B6 is an oxygenator. So this energy production <laughs> aerobic anaerobic thing is very complicated and it's a, and so that's why I want to go back to um to confirm what our David here says. <laughs> And that is, uh, it's really good to have these things tested. Just don't go in taking uh, nutrients without knowing what you're doing, because you could be wrong.
0: Totally agree. You know, another Christy, Christy, it's Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? Good. Glad (laughs) to have you join us.
6: You know, when I was hearing you talk about lactate pyruvate, if any of you are familiar with um, Richard Kelly from Kennedy Krieger, one of the things that he he feels is that alanine is a less volatile marker because we have so many, um, you know, variables in terms of was the lactate handled properly, was the child struggling, was there a tourniquet, Um, and that elevated alanine is a much more stable marker. And my oldest son, for example, had very, very, very elevated alanine. So that's something to to also keep in mind that if you're not able to get the lactate pyruvate, which I certainly have many blood draws that that was the case, um, that the alanine is a equivalent marker with less volatility.
0: That's great. Thanks, Alyssa. Glad you jumped in, too. Um, I can
1: just give you kind of a little feedback. Usually we have less uh, moving around um, during the blood draw if I put lidocaine on and my son knows he's not going to feel the stick. So it takes away some of the fear or the anticipation, and he does not uh, move around because he knows he's not going to feel the pressure or the stick coming in.
0: That's a great Um, And, you know, I think it also brings up the point, and this is something that um, Alyssa was actually sharing with me, that if you can have a plan with the phlebotomist or even have an appointment before the actual blood draw so that the whole procedure is clear in their mind and you're not just walking in blind to a lab full of kids, and then trying to explain to somebody, oh, oh oh no, you can't use a tourniquet. No no no, that's not the right way to do this. No no no, it has to be iced. And then you're prolonging that experience for your child and increasing their anxiety and
6: and the overnight um, fast, which is a big problem.
0: Right. So a lot of people they say, "Oh, you need to, you know, they need to be fasting and we'll see you tomorrow at 1030 and then you don't actually get back there till noon and then your child is like a puddle on the floor by the time that you are taking them back for the labs, um, that having this plan in advance and really doing your homework as an advocate for your child can make a big difference in the success of getting this test. Alyssa, would you add anything else to that? Well, for
6: for us, because my son gets very hypoglycemic, it's reducing the length of the overnight fast. And so um, it's better to go in and get all of the tubes labeled because they all have to be in different colored tubes. Um, So you'd have like a tray set up in advance. They'd all be labeled with your child's name, you know, whomever. Um, you worked with would be somebody who hopefully who would be there the next day, so the handling procedure could be followed um and I think that it will reduce the length of the overnight fast as well as minimize handling um uh, you know mishaps and um you know what we've found is that um kids with mitochondrial disease tend to be chronically dehydrated. So you may want to prioritize your tubes in terms of what do you absolutely need to get done first and then depending on how much blood they're able to get, you may end up having to go back a different time because an initial metabolic workup could be up to 12 vials of blood.
0: Wow. Um. So, I think that kind of approach really is helpful. The other piece that we haven't talked about yet is when to do these tests, and this is a tough tough piece also because um if you really have a great cooperative relationship with your um, developmental pediatrician or your doctor, and you can do a baseline set of labs and then have those labs repeated when your child is um, a little bit sick or under the weather and not, during well, not doing well or even during a time of regression, then you might see a difference in those labs and you have a baseline then to compare them to, which kind of goes back to then making the argument that um, when the body is physiologically stressed, you're already kind of acting on a deficit of ATP production anyway, and then you're adding additional energy demand through an illness to the body, and then the body really can't keep up, so then that's when your child might be regressing or might be really tired or might be symptomatic in some other way that they might not always be, and that's when getting those labs can sometimes be very illuminating. Anybody want to say anything about that or had experience with that?
7: I have a question. Mm -hmm. I am actually, and my daughter is in my lap, and we are on our way home from Mass General for having this workup done and GI scopes as well. And I'm wondering about they drew all the blood while she was under anesthesia. And it wasn't ever something I considered, the tourniquet, the blood pressure cough,
0: the um or
7: the or the drug
0: you know the anesthesia shouldn't impact the value of the labs as much as something like the blood pressure cuff and the what? way it was handled was uh-huh. however um they probably drew that through Here her iv
3: you
0: know if if she was um if she had an iv cuz she was having you know um conscious sedation um during the procedure then they probably had Uh, You know, a port where you can draw directly off the IV, which makes for a very clean sample that you actually can't really get when you just go into for outpatient labs. Um, I also would, you know, say that Mass General um, sees a lot of kids with mito and so should be pretty familiar with the handling process for that. So I think you are probably in good hands from that. Um, Anybody else have any other questions or experiences about that? Um, okay. Anybody have any questions or things to to kind of back up or clarify so far? Um, great. So you know, if you go back to this um, bigger picture idea again, that there are these this three pronged approach for diagnosing mitochondrial disease: symptoms and clinical presentation, biochemical and mi- metabolic testing, and molecular and histological testing. We'll talk about the molecular and histological testing first. But um, what I want to also say to you is that then the priorities for approaching testing for um, your child, if you're kind of getting into this, is making sure that the appropriate labs are ordered and that you have a plan in place and you've kind of made sure that you'll have appropriate collection and handling of the samples. It could actually be harder for you if you get these things ordered and they aren't handled properly and enough isn't ordered and the tests all come back normal or inconclusive, right? Because then it's like, well, we already tested for that and it was fine. Anybody had that happen to them? Um, okay, you're, that's great because sometimes that happens, and it's like, oh, we already tested that; it was fine, and and then you're you're fighting a battle to try to go back and argue that it wasn't done properly, which can be more difficult. So, just having that plan. I also feel strongly that that it's difficult to be a parent advocate because you can't go order these tests yourself, nor can you interpret them. And so while you're working so hard to be educated and to be able to advocate for your kids, um, on the other hand, if you don't have a knowledgeable physician, an experienced physician or one who is willing to learn who will make a follow-up appointment with you eight to ten weeks after those labs are drawn to talk about what the results are and who can interpret the results or at least have the wherewithal to recognize that they don't know the results and can't understand the results and want to, um, you know, direct you back to that referral to see someone else. If you don't have that, then you actually can, um, you know, be kind of back at square one. So it's really important to try to have to get that. And does anybody, um, Alyssa and Patty in particular, because you guys have – been through this have any suggestions on you know what to do during that process to kind of make sure that everything that you take every step you take as an advocate kind of takes you in the right direction
6: Mm, you know it's hard Uh, you know we really have seen many different uh, doctors and um, what i say is we got one good new idea from each person we saw it was very hard for us to find one doctor who could take us from, you know, point A all the way to Z. Um, it, it took a team approach, someone who was willing to do one piece of it, someone who was willing to do another piece of it. I wish I had better news, but that that has been our experience.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'd kind of echo it and say in a different way that you would get conflicting information from different folks as well. So as a parent, you have to just parse it out and kind of meaning some, some doctors are more opinionated or more assertive than others, and they will just outright say that that doesn't mean anything and things like that. But, and another doctor might say, no, something else. So as a parent, it was sometimes for us to kind of parse those conflicting information and kind of sometimes go with the instincts, come, sometimes talk to other parents, sometimes read research and whatever you can do to get other information and and make the decision as to test further or go with the treatment options and things like that. And that's what is, uh, is quite a bit of a challenge.
2: That's been my experience, too, even though I've been into this from a different angle uh, over the years. That and, it, and I came to it the hard way, thinking that these people were experts, and it took meeting ignorant doctor, egotistical ignorant doctor after egotistical ignorant doctor to realize that this is my life, this is my family. I really know more than they do. I'm very grateful for the little pieces each one can give. But on the whole, only one person was, and that was my actually my nutritional counselor, who knew more and more, to a large extent, because he was more open-minded than all the all the M.D.s. Mm-hmm. Christy, I, I think it's important to note that we really
6: are in the middle of emerging research. Um, my children were diagnosed um, in the summer of '09. And there really, even from just then, has been, you know, more people are educated, more people have heard the word mitochondrial disease, more people are beginning to hear a connection between autism and mitochondrial disease. And, you know, in some sense, although an MD may not have the answers, there is value in advocating to create a dialogue is how I look at it. That's
0: definitely true. Um, Anybody else have any comments or...
4: Yeah, and Christy, one thing that worked well for us is record keeping, and I'm sure everyone does this—having all the records, especially when you go see a, a specialist—and writing down all the chronological um, kind of clinical symptoms observed and what interventions, so that, uh, like the new doctor, so to speak, can get a good get up to speed with what what all has happened and 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 um, and what interventions have been tried and what were the effects so that usually has helped us quite a bit when we visit new doctors I
0: agree. I,
4: I
6: agree Patty we we've also had that for both of our boys, boys it's like a chronological summary um Starting like with their Billy Rubin scores and, you know, the first symptoms and when was he diagnosed failure to thrive and how long was he on Elicare and, you know, all those details that sort of create the sum of the parts um, and to really keep it updated um, so that if you had an initial colonoscopy or endoscopy and then you had a follow-up that, you know, you have an up-to-date medical summary on the kids all in one place because that is what happens, Christy. When you're moving maybe from one doctor who's a endocrine specialist to somebody who's um you know a gastroenterology is a specialist, then you know the two don't do a good job communicating, so it's good to have all the information in one place
0: absolutely um you know, I think that um you guys bring up a another kind of good point, which is the process for this can take a little while and that can be tough because if you are seeing your child regressing, um, it can be really hard to just sit back and let this happen. But one of the best things you can do as an advocate is be really organized and present the material in a way that you can um, make sense of it and help to speak the language so you can streamline the process as much as possible because it can take quite a while if you don't do that for someone to just sift through and make sense of everything you have so far. Mm -hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what they would find if they were doing um, molecular testing or um, histological testing um, through a muscle biopsy for the tissue or by looking at the um, genes in blood. That's kind of, I think, um, the last step. So probably not the focus of what you guys would be doing, because we're talking about screening. But I feel like if you're going to have a conversation about testing, you want to know, you know, what what ultimately gives you that diagnosis. So everything we've talked about so far, screening lab evidence for a mitochondrial dysfunction, it's evidence for to warrant further testing, but it's not diagnostic. Okay, so. When we talk about molecular testing, um, molecular testing means that you are um, testing for the genes. You're looking at specific genes to connect abnormalities, just like DNA analysis. And uh, we have some ways to do that now. So there are some new companies that are offering some tests that actually test specifically for um certain genes. And so some of you might have heard of um, GeneDx or the company Medomics, and both are offering um, a wide array of genetic testing that uh, are looking at the specific genes, including the nuclear genes, which we feel are more common for these children um, and their kind of cause of mitochondrial disease, That are looking at those, not completely comprehensive, but definitely huge advances than where we were even just a couple years ago. And um, if you want more information about that, you can actually find it on the website, and we'll include it in the summary as well.
4: Uh, uh, hey, Christy, do you know if Mayo, the, the male test of mutation, is that comparable or is it different from what GeneDx does?
0: You know, I don't know about that. Um Patty, I certainly don't. If you want to email me about it, though, I can see what I can um find out. But, sorry, somebody's got a bad reception there. So, um you can use star 6 to mute your phone if you're in a bad bad spot. Um Medomics I know the most about, and they are um, very responsive to asking to answering questions from patients so i um if you have a question, I encourage you to um, you know email them right off their website and uh David Keene from Medomics will answer your questions um there's another piece of genetic testing that's interesting because this has just recently been published, and that's a chromosomal microarray analysis, uh, an abbreviated CMA, um, that can be done via white blood cells, that can be that can be used to look for depletions or duplications in the um, mitochondrial um, DNA. So that's a new um, study that I think we warrants some more investigation and, and review as well. Uh, um, excuse me, I have a question on that. Yeah, go ahead.
5: Um, when they order that, I thought they were just looking at nuclear. They're also
0: looking at mitochondrial? Um, you know, I want to actually have the study in front of me to tell you the definitive answer on that. Okay. Alyssa, do you know off the top of your head? I don't. Um, why don't I look that up to clarify for you, um,
6: Christy, that brings me to another thing. Before any more people leave, could we ask for um, email addresses for the list?
0: Absolutely. So, um, everybody, we're trying to build a list so that we can send you an update when we have the summary posted and when the new section of the website's ready and to um, announce other future calls. So, the best thing to do is if you would please send an email real quick to autism at mitoaction.org. And just include your name, maybe a piece or two of background information, um, including where you're from, and then we'll have your email address to include to the list. So if you'll send an email to autism at mitoaction.org. Um, sorry, I don't have the answer to your question right off the top of my head, but I certainly am okay, happy to take a look at that. My sons had
5: that, and it came back normal, but I thought they were just looking at nuclear.
0: Um let me take a look at the actual study cuz I have the abstract but I but I don't have the actual study in okay. front of me. Let me take a look at it and we can clarify that for you. All right, you. thanks. Um, so when you talk about genetic testing versus muscle um sometimes we you know we were relying on muscle biopsy almost completely for so many years, but the genetic testing now is improved so much that sometimes you can catch that diagnosis and that defect without ever having to do the muscle biopsy. And so many physicians are looking to do the um, genetic screening through blood sample first and to kind of see what that brings up, looking again at that big picture to then be able to identify whether or not you need to go through with the muscle biopsy. Um, muscle biopsy is kind of a whole other conversation in and of itself, and there is some great information on MitoAction's website about muscle biopsy because this is a huge area of concern and question for everyone who has um, mitochondrial disease, so I encourage you to um, look at that. You can t- The search box on the website it works great. So you can just put in muscle biopsy, and you'll find um, a very good article, for example, by Fran Kendall, who's in Atlanta, who is – available, by the way, to see patients who are, like you guys, looking for more information about kind of what are my next steps, if I have a child who I think has those red flags, and her information is on our website as well. Um, but I direct you to do that because the muscle biopsy um, can tell us a lot of things. It can tell us about the structure of the um the mitochondria, and it can tell us about the number and the activity of the mitochondria, and it can also tell us specifically about the enzyme complexes that um, are part of the electron transport chain, which is where energy is actually made in the mitochondria. So you heard Patty at the beginning of the call say, oh, I'm interested in OXFOS. That's oxidative phosphorylation, and that's this description of how these enzyme complexes take the food that you eat and generate ATP at a rate that is remarkable in all the cells of our body except for red blood cells and able to provide enough energy for us. So when you have a defect in one of those complexes, then, or one of those enzymes, then that's a oxfos um, defect and that's a respiratory chain defect. They mean the same thing. And as a result, we can actually, with a muscle biopsy, look at the activity levels of those complexes. So if you hear somebody say, oh, I have complex 1 and complex 3 deficiency, what they're saying is that when they had a muscle biopsy, they were able to see that those enzyme complexes in the mitochondria weren't working as effectively as they should. So they're the reason that you're not getting enough ATP. Does that change what your treatment is? Not really. Um, maybe it will in the future, and for some people, having that diagnosis you know kind of helps you identify in the next step, but not really um, so sorry, everyone, about the um ringing, but we're Welcome about to
8: Verizon wireless, the wireless customer here. you called is not available at this time. Please try your call again later announcement one switch two eight dash one.
0: Okay, that was exciting. So, <laughs> welcome
8: to Verizon Wireless. Sorry, everyone. The wireless hold on. you gonna... called is not available Can at this, call this time. Please try your call again later. Announcement 1 gonna, um, switch to one. dash one.
0: All right, everyone. I just muted everyone except me. So, my apologies to mute you, but I wanted to be able to finish up without um our background there. Apologies for that. And uh but wanted you to know that um we're going to put all of this into a summary, and I will get back on the line just a second so if anybody has any additional questions. But I wanted to encourage all of you to you know, do what you're doing right now, which is to just start to gather information so that you can better understand what all this means and that you're not just blindly kind of looking at these tests and wondering what to do next or it would be quite normal to feel overwhelmed, but really having a, a stepwise approach to understanding this, all with the hopes that you can – do better for your kids and that you can help them so that they are making progress and they're not regressing and that their symptoms are better managed and that it all makes better sense. So let me switch back over and see if we have any questions, but I'll apologize in advance if we have that background noise because it might cut us short. We'll ask you again if you'd like to be part of our mailing list to send an email to autism at mitoaction.org so we can be sure to include you and keep you updated as we update the website as well. So here we go. Let's see how we're... All right. Maybe that's um, better there. So anybody have any final questions or comments? Yeah, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering if anybody on this group has um, experience having done uh, genetic
5: testing with transgenomics.
0: Um, That's um, where my doctor ordered um, some... All right, everyone. So, again, this is Christy Balsells. I'm the executive director and... um, of MitoAction and we're just going to be talking a little bit about diagnostic testing for mitochondrial disease on our autism call today. Um, I do want to just preface everything with the common sense note that um, I'm not your doctor nor am I a physician and so I encourage you to you know, take this for what it is meant to be which is information for you to go back and learn more about and Make sense of yourself and ask questions and have conversations with your pediatrician or specialists rather than you know taking this as information that you would act on yourself um, and If you have any more questions, you can always reach out to us and we can try to talk further about this but we 're going to kind of start from the ground up, I think, in terms of understanding <clears throat> about testing, and this is informal because this is just just me. Um, you know, sharing what we've prepared with you. So I encourage you guys to jump in and stop me and ask some questions um, also as we go um, along the way. Um, I, I want to start by saying that for a long time, a muscle biopsy was the really considered the only way that you could diagnose mitochondrial disease. And so a muscle biopsy is where they actually take a piece of tissue, typically from the thigh, and um, look at the activity of the processes that make mitochondria in that piece of tissue. Um, when you have a, a muscle biopsy, then it's invasive. Um, for children, it requires anesthesia, which for mitopatients or anyone with mitochondrial dysfunction, um, autism or not, has a certain degree of risk. Um, it slows down the mitochondrial function even further and is very expensive. And so, you know, for many years it was probably the case that we were overlooking a large percentage of um, children with mitochondrial disease because we simply could not send everyone that we thought had those red flags off for a muscle biopsy. And so we were really only catching kind of, you know, if we're throwing out the net, we're only catching the biggest fish, if you will. And now things are changing, and this is all very new that things are changing so to give you i mean to give you that perspective, it was in the eighties that mitochondrial disease and mitochondrial medicine was really coined as a field and a term and then it wasn't until the nineties that we even started to know that mitochondrial disease could be inherited in any other way than from the mother's mitochondrial DNA um Now we know that Mitochondrial disease in children is most often inherited in a what's called a nuclear DNA um, inheritance pattern, which means that typically there are, um, like cystic fibrosis, for example, and some other genetic diseases, there are both parents have a carrier gene that affects the function of mitochond of the mitochondria, and so then the child inherits it that way. There are even adults who could have inherited this way who maybe had soft symptoms their whole life and never really was able to, um, you know, have anything serious enough to have a diagnosis or were misdiagnosed. But for our kids with autism, um, what we don't know is exactly what gene we're looking for. So I think that's important to understand, too, is that it's not like you're missing some vital piece of information and if you only knew how to test for that gene, you would know how to be, you know, Identified that it is really complex, and that's part of what makes it challenging to diagnose um, the disease. Is that you're you have to really kind of look at a broad spectrum um, to understand. So, you know, that brings up the point of do people want a diagnosis and so forth? And for some people with mitochondrial disease, then um, they feel that they don't need a diagnosis because um, you know they can. Maybe they have a neurologist and they have enough um, solid symptoms that they found someone who can put them on the supplements and and they don't really need to go any further. I get the impression from most of you guys who are parents of kids who have autism that that, that, that doesn't happen for you guys, um, that because of this existing co-diagnosis of autism or ASD or Asperger's, et cetera, that um, that, that tends to overshadow the other piece And you really have to be a great advocate in kind of pointing out that there are these other issues that aren't making sense because the behavioral piece or the regression piece tends to kind of be dominant on what people's focus is. As a group, would you guys say that that has been your experience too? Do you feel like you have to be your own advocate because of that? Absolutely.
2: Yes, very much so. Definitely. If it weren't for me, my kids wouldn't be healed. (laughs)
0: Um, So when we we think about then testing now, the good news is that it's not always just about a muscle biopsy anymore, which, you know, I mean, even as little as I'd say five years ago, that's what everybody was doing is if you wanted to get diagnosed, then boom, you needed to have that muscle biopsy, which was a significant um, cost and invasive test. And so we didn't really have anything kind of too much in the meantime to help us screen to even get to that point. Um, we're doing better with that. And like I said, now we know that most children in particular inherit this disease from both parents on nuclear um, DNA, which are nuclear genes, meaning they come from both parents. However, there are over a 1,000 nuclear genes, and yet we can only identify um, a couple hundred of those. So we don't know all of those genes associated with mitochondrial disease. We only know a couple hundred. Are there more? Definitely. Are there more associated with specific syndromes? Definitely. Do we know what those are? No, we can't match those two together yet. And so um, that's a lot of what the research is kind of pointed to these days is, okay, we identified this one nuclear gene and we can kind of classically identify some symptoms that go with it, or if we look at these kids and we test for this type of gene and this group of kids that has autism, can we find that a lot of them have a, a defect in that? That's what the research is looking at a lot today. So I want to kind of give you the, the bird's eye view first and say that um, we typically think about diagnosing mitochondrial disease from a three-pronged approach, Prong one is the symptoms and clinical presentation. Prong two is biochemical and metabolic testing. Those are like your blood tests, as well as um, imaging, like MRI. And part three is what's called molecular and histological testing. And so that would be what we get um, where we are doing skin or muscle biopsy or we're looking at the, um, the tissue or the DNA sequencing. Let me um, talk a little bit about each of those, and feel free to stop me at any point if you have a question or need me to to stop and clarify. When we talk about symptoms and clinical presentation, then this is the area where a lot of people say, well, what what does that mean for my child with autism? Well, for your child with autism, then um, we kind of can think of it as red flags, and there's a, a very good... If not intimidating and comprehensive list of red flags that you can look at that's on the um, mitochondrial medicine Society website, and that website is mito dot org so like short for mito dot org That's a group of um, leading clinicians and researchers who are also trying to i think convey this information. Um, to other physicians, be a great place to direct your physician if they are willing or interested to learn a little bit more. But you'll see some of those red flags. And and some of those are tests. Um, for example, an elevated lactic acid or an elevated alanine level, which would be measured by blood or which would be measured by um, urine organic acids, which are tests that you can do. And we're going to hit a little bit um, in our highlights today, and some of those are symptoms, and a symptom is something that your child, um, you know, feels or that you can describe as the patient experience, so your child doesn't say, I have lactic acidosis, your child says, I have a headache or I have constipation, so um, what what is it that you are feeling? And so some of those red flags, I would say, that are unusual for kids with autism, but Typical for kids with mito, so that creates kind of this hmm, maybe we should look more into the mito side of things are uh, low muscle tone um we call that hypotonia um, th- uh, regression with an illness or difficulty recovering from an illness, um, particularly an illness with a fever, you know low stamina and fatigue are hallmark characteristics of mitochondrial disease and need to be remembered for kids who are on the spectrum. Particularly, it needs to be recognized that low stamina and fatigue doesn't mean that the child just peacefully curls up in a ball and falls asleep. That, that also can mean that the child is irritable, um, avoidant, can't make eye contact, is you know uncooperative because they're so tired, you know, especially if you can notice that as like the day or the activity level or the expectations of them are greater. Um, so those are some of the, a few red flags. Another red flag that um, is a tough one because there are, are lots of kids with, you know, a whole other side of autism is the nutrition and allergy kind of side, but the dysmotility, which is having difficulty digesting food and um like Beth was saying, you know, chronic constipation or just you know really slow processing, and then kids who get behind on their nutrition and their hydration because of that—that's a real problem, and that's a more common symptom for mitochondrial disease as well. Um, all of those can you can kind of think of that also as this idea of. The autonomic nervous system isn't working effectively because it takes so much energy. So, from a mitochondrial disease perspective, what's happening is your body isn't making energy at the rate that it should. And so, your um, autonomic nervous system, which should control things like how you digest food or how well you're able to keep a normal body temperature, even if it's hot outside, or how well you're able to keep up your stamina and so forth. Um, your blood pressure, your heart rate, et cetera, doesn't happen because that is um, getting shorted out, if you will, by the lack of energy. So um, when we talk about biochemical and metabolic testing, then we start to get into some more specifics. There, On this website that I mentioned before, there are some screening labs that are um, recommending, recommended, and part of the idea of this group is not to ask you guys to all run out and go, you know, um, lab shopping, so that you can order a bunch of tests, but so that you know what some of those tests are, because maybe there are some things that could be easily or more routinely screened wherever you live right now, with the help of your neurologist or your even your um, Dan, doctor, or your pediatrician or developmental pediatrician, that then could get you referred to the right place so that you could see that geneticist or you could see that metabolic physician or that neurologist who specializes in mitochondrial disease um, to talk a little bit about why these tests were not normal, if that's the case.
1: And, Christy, so you said the website, I'm sorry to interrupt, was uh, mitosoc.org, correct? Yes, okay. Correct. Thank you. I'm going
2: to log on right now and us look
0: at it. Yeah, no problem. Anybody else have questions or comments before I start kind of listening through this?
2: I, I have a question back. This is Carol. Um, back with the uh, muscle tone. Um, my daughter uh, always had terrible muscle tone. In fact, when she hit first grade, the OT said she'd never seen such bad muscle tone outside of cerebral palsy. Me too. My mother too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we're like floppy people, mm-hmm. and uh, and so you know, as a person who always was tired for no reason that people understood, um, I mean, I literally have had tears flowing down my face as you've been talking because what you're describing is me and my family. You know.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. She had a no pupillary reflex when she had trouble learning how to read in first grade. She looked like a normal child, but her teacher thought she was just a discipline problem because she was, quote, unmotivated. Well, mm-hmm. she was too tired, you know. Mm-hmm. And then it took a very special uh, physical therapist who recognized she had no pupillary reflex. Give me a break. How can you learn how to, f- how to read if you can't focus your eyes? These are things we don't even consider when testing right. children. Uh, so I don't know what my question is. <laughs> well, so
0: it sounds like, um, you know, you bring up a great point, which is that when you when you get confused about the symptoms of mitochondrial disease and you're overwhelmed by this information and it doesn't make any sense, go back to the idea that all of this is happening because the areas of the body that require the most energy are not getting enough. Your eyes, for example, take an incredible amount of energy to function, as does the brain and central nervous system, your muscles, your gut, and your heart. So your skin doesn't require an awful lot of energy to kind of do what it does. Um, Your kidneys are important, but they require less energy than some other organ systems of the body. So if you go back to that idea of, Making sense of the symptoms because you're understanding which areas of the body require the most energy, then it can help you make a little bit more sense and the eyes is the eyes are one of those that are often overlooked. thanks so much um any other questions or comments before I talk about the screening labs?
4: um Christy, this is Patty. I just wanted to add some from our experience about great go ahead, going. Patty um, so you, you mentioned like having Dan doctors or neurologists and stuff like that, so that's that's obviously a good option. We had now I think it's more commonplace to associate mitochondrial dysfunction with developmental delays and autism and things like that. Maybe a couple of years ago, people would just stare at you and things like that if you kind of brought the two together. So one of the things that we found was to not kind of bring up like say autism or things like that, but other metabolic biomarkers that might have come off in in, in your regular CBCs and stuff to go persuade or, or tell your pediatrician or your specialist that either you need to see a metabolic expert. And there's a caveat there, as you might know, that metabolic experts are usually very busy and you don't get an appointment uh, for a good six months sometimes. Exactly. That. So obviously the, half the pediatrician writes some basic metabolic screening tests, and obviously we can't talk about which, which test would be applicable to who, but I'm sure the pediatrician, if you talk about mitochondrial dysfunctions and also reference some of the research studies that point to uh, or, or kind of implicate mitochondrial dysfunction in, um, in, in autism and development delays, that might get you to get the pediatrician to help you more.
0: And there's a list on that mitosos.org website, which I think sometimes referring your pediatrician to an outside, you know, source other than you um, might be helpful. Also, would you would you agree, Patty?
4: Yeah, I think so. If there's a list, then um, yes, certainly. You know, um, because I think it's now people are understanding. Christie is is what I'm uh, getting um, uh, seeing that more doctors are kind of seeing the link. And, and there was this Dr. Rosinald's paper, I don't know, Christy, if you've seen that, that kind of did a meta-study on all mitochondrial and autism kind of connection. Have mm-hmm. you, that that the, the, There are studies like that that can be used as well.
0: Um, that's that's great. And, you know, when we build the abstracts, Patty, we'll, we'll find that one and include that.
1: Um, it's Dan Rosinald if you wanted to know.
0: Uh, Okay, great. Anybody else have any comments or questions to add? And I'll I'll go through some of these um, tests, which are also on that website. Um, Okay, great. Uh, Let me preface this by saying that, um, you know, we... I'm not gonna be able to identify for you kind of the norms for each of these labs, nor do I think as a parent at this point you really need to worry yourself with that. I just think that at this point you're kind of trying to understand what they're screening for of all the possible things to be looking at. Um, So remember when I was talking about that three-pronged approach, the first prong is Uh, symptoms and clinical presentation. The second piece is biochemical and metabolic testing. And the third piece is molecular and histological testing. And molecular testing means you look at the genes to detect abnormalities. And histological testing means you look at the tissues. Um, And enzymology means you look at the biological activity, um, for example, in those tissues. So let's talk about the biochemical and metabolic testing, which typically can be um blood and urine tests. And the great piece about that is that as we get better at interpreting those tests, then um that's exciting, right? Because we're not having to do any invasive testing right off the bat. So this is the list that is identified on the Mitochondrial Medicine Society, looking at your CMP, which is your basic chemistries, liver function, so that's liver enzymes, ammonia levels, a complete blood count, creatine kinase levels, blood lactate, pyruvate in the blood, and that's also called serum lactate or serum pyruvate, that means the same thing as blood, Um, qualitative plasma amino acids, and the plasma acetylcarnitine profile. Uh, And then in the urine looking at the quantitative urinary organic acids, free and total carnitine, um I'm sorry, and then I'm sorry, and then also in the plasma looking at free and total carnitine, coq10, and um and then there's some other very specific um ways to try to measure B12 status and um spe- unique to this group is the HBA1C um because that's something having to do with uh, insulin resistance and hyperglycemia and hypoglycemia, which is kind of counterpart to mitochondrial dysfunction. There's a lot of research about the relationship between type two diabetes and mitochondrial dysfunction. So, um,
2: H B as in boy.
0: Yes. Okay. And this is listed on the website as well. And I'm going to put all this in the summary that Alyssa has been um, working with me on as well. Alyssa, are you on by the chance? Okay. Um, there are some, it, by urine also, there are um, urine amino acids and just urinalysis. But most typically it's those urinary organic acids that you're looking for, Um One thing that we always look for on those urinary organic acids is an elevated alanine level. That's A-L-A-N-I-N-E. It's one of those red flags that we talked about before that's a test. And um, not all children have an elevated lactate level, but we look at those, you know, remember I mentioned blood lactate and blood pyruvate, those are two... Um, byproducts of the process of making energy in the mitochondria and they get elevated when there's an inefficient inefficiency of making the ATP which is the energy and so there's too much of those and so they get elevated so we can look at those but they're not always elevated so another thing to test for is an abnormal lactate to pyruvate ratio um, and like I said don't don't worry if this is kind of news to you because we're going to have it written out for you as well, but those are kind of the the basics now what we're learning though is I think that there are some more tests, and so we were looking at some specific studies to talk about um, that would help identify additional tests that might for this group of kids with autism who don't always kind of test for the standard you know right off the bat um on the metabolic t- labs, they aren't always typically abnormal the way that, say, a um, person with more mitochondrial dysfunction or maybe it's mitochondrial dysfunction that's surfacing in a different way would be. Then we also look at, um, there was a study that said that if if there were 100 children with autism that were evaluated for blood carnitine levels, that 83% of those had carnitine levels below the norm. Um, So that study is very suggestive that the majority of autistic children could have a relative carnitine deficiency. So that's another piece that's, I think, important for um, this group as well. Has anybody had um, carnitine testing done? Would you be willing to share a little bit about that?
1: I've had everything tested. It would take me a minute to get my testing out, but um, I know carnitine was low.
0: Okay, and and so um, did that prompt you guys to start carnitine?
1: Um, well, right now we're waiting for we have an appointment with our Dan doctor on Monday. Okay. I don't like to te- do anything without talking with them first and saying should I start this or should I not start it?
0: Sure, I just and, and, I, and like I was also wondering or, if they had started it right. I, and I, was, I don't like to
1: skew it. They want to retest it. I don't want to add it and then have it elevated or have it the levels low. I like to keep it where it is and let them tell me what to add.
0: And, you know, you bring up another point, which is that um, some people, you know, m- may be already using supplements, and then when you get around to doing this metabolic testing, it can influence the test result. So um, it may make it appear normal or falsely elevated. So what we want to do is be sure that if you're having any of this testing that, um, that you're not on those supplements. At that time, um, most Mito patients. Sorry, say,
5: um, do you know how long they would have to be off before
0: um, to get you get an know, extra read? You know, um, I want to double check on that for you. But my thought is six to eight weeks. Yeah. Okay. Um, you
5: just watch them regress and lose everything for. That's
0: the that's <laughs> the difficult. That's the hard part, I think, about spe- right. now. There, but keep in mind that there are other things that you could be testing for, like the. Um, alanine levels, for example, and the lactate to pyruvate ratio that may not be improved by something like carnitine, whereas you When they do a
5: CMP, is that part of... um, Is that just a standard thing where they do that ratio, or is that something that... No, it's
0: a specific test. The CMP is going to list, you know, your chemistry, so that's a pretty basic test that just includes a few other things sometimes um the c o two level might be off, but not you know not always, so that might just be um a basic screening. but the lactate and pyruvate are specific tests that have to be ordered and in fact, while we're talking about that, let me throw in that um a lactate can be um mishandled very easily, so it's very important that when you're taking a blood lactate level that the blood is taken without a tourniquet on the arm. Mm -hmm. So um, it's also important that those levels can be um, falsely, you know, changed if there is a lot of struggling. You know, and in kids it's not easy to take a blood sample, you know, um, that way. So whatever you're doing, it's important that the kids are – not moving around a lot and that you get a really good sample and that it's not tourniqueted. So what they do is they um, they might use the tourniquet to um, find the vein but take it off, wait a period of time, and then they do the, the stick without using the tourniquet to get that um, lactate level. And, uh, and then it has to be handled appropriately. There are specific um, instructions that labs have that you just need to follow um, – Specifically for how to handle that, because if you you know if you just go in and then you're just like um, oh let's get a lactate and pyruvate along with the CBC and then everybody you got a big tourniquet on the arm the lactate's the last thing that they draw it can be um, changed and it also needs to be the pyruvate needs to be iced immediately so it's one of those things that's very sensitive so. Um,
1: well, I'll jump in and ask the question. What what impact does a tourniquet have? What did it what did it do? that adversely impacts the blood draw.
0: You know, um, I hope I'm not. I'm speaking off the top of my head here, so I'm, I want to go back and double check. But my my, if I recall, it lyses the cells,
3: okay.
0: and um, can abnormally elevate the level of lactate. Okay. Um, because it's tourniqueted. because when you um, are drawing that through the tourniquet, then the cells have to go through a um, tighter space, you know, so it, mm-hmm. it's, it lyses them, which is like squeezes or strips them, and then can abnormally um, affect that lactate level.
4: Hey, Christy, can I add some yes. of my science kind of education background? So lactic acid is a byproduct of um, anaerobic respiration, So when cells don't have enough oxygen and they have to create energy, then a byproduct, meaning in a typical sense, if the oxygen is enough, then you should just get CO2 and H2O when you burn um, um, carbohydrates. But when you don't have enough O2, then you get lactic acid, which is the cause of cramps when you're working out too heavy. So now think of the tourniquet and a struggling kid when drawing the blood then the muscles in the arm are working really heavy. They are lysed, as Christy pointed out, and and, um, and the oxygen required for the energy of the struggle and all might be less, which might make those cells that are fighting in the muscles there to generate more lactic acid.
0: Patty, so what a great explanation. Thank you.
2: Well, and it brings up something that I know, too, Carol. Um, the... The first miracle in my kids' lives the second miracle, I guess was getting to be in the in the research that developed spectra cell testing and they found and in that research uh they they said it took six to six weeks to three months to get the cells charged up with the missing nutrients also it was emphasized uh by my nutritional counselor that you don't want to just take individual B vitamins because they can throw the balance of B vitamins off. And then there's the aspect that one thing that I found out in that testing was that my chronic yawn that I'd had my whole life was due to B6 deficiency because B6 is an oxygenator. So this energy production, (laughs) aerobic, anaerobic thing, it's very complicated, and it's a, and so that's why I want to go back to um, to confirm what our David here said. Um, and that is, uh, it's really good to have these things tested. Just don't go in taking uh, nutrients without knowing what you're doing, because you could be wrong.
0: Totally right. agree. You know, another Christy, Christy, yeah. Alyssa. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? Good. Glad to have you join us. (laughs) Um,
6: You know, when I was hearing you talk about lactate pyruvate, if any of you are familiar with um, Richard Kelly from Kennedy Krieger, one of the things that he he, he feels is that alanine is a less volatile marker because we have so many, um, you know, variables in terms of was the lactate handled properly, was the child struggling, was there a tourniquet, Um, and that elevated alanine is a much more stable marker. And my oldest son, for example, had very, very, very elevated alanine. So that's something to to also keep in mind that if you're not able to get the lactate pyruvate, which I certainly have many blood draws that that was the case, um, that the alanine is a equivalent marker with less volatility.
0: That's great. Thanks, Alyssa. Glad you jumped in, too.
1: Um, I can just give you kind of a little feedback. Usually we have less uh, moving around um, during the blood draw if I put lidocaine on and my son knows he's not going to feel the stick. So it takes away some of the fear or the anticipation, and he does not uh, move around because he knows he's not going to feel the pressure or the stick coming in.
0: That's a great um Point, and you know, I think it also brings up the point, and this is something that um Alyssa was actually sh- sharing with me that if you can have a plan with the phlebotomist or even have an appointment before the actual blood draw, so that the whole procedure is clear in their mind, and you're not just walking in blind to a lab full of kids and then trying to explain to somebody, oh, oh oh no, you can't use a tourniquet. No no no, that's not the right way to do this. No no no, it has to be iced. And then you're prolonging that experience for your child and increasing their anxiety and and the overnight um, fast,
6: which is a big problem.
0: Right. So a lot of people they say, "Oh, you need to, you know, they need to be fasting and we'll see you tomorrow at 1030, and then you don't actually get back there till noon, and then your child is like a puddle on the floor by the time that you are taking them back for the labs, um, that having this plan in advance and really doing your homework as an advocate for your child can make a big difference in the success of getting this test. Alyssa, would you add anything else to that? Well, for for
6: us, because my son gets very hypoglycemic, it's reducing the length of the overnight fast. And so um, it's better to go in and get all of the tubes labeled because they all have to be in different colored tubes. Um, So you'd have like a tray set up in advance. They'd all be labeled with your child's name, you know, whomever. Um, you worked with would be somebody, hopefully, who would be there the next day, so the handling procedure could be followed. Um, And I think that it will reduce the length of the overnight fast as well as minimize handling, uh, you know, mishaps. And, um, you know, what we've found is that um, kids with mitochondrial disease tend to be chronically dehydrated. So you may want to prioritize your tubes in terms of what do you absolutely need to get done first, and then depending on how much blood they're able to get, you may end up having to go back a different time because an initial metabolic workup could be up to 12 vials of blood.
0: Wow. Um, So I think that kind of approach really is helpful. The other piece that we haven't talked about yet is when to do these tests. And this is a tough tough piece also because um, if you really have a great cooperative relationship with your um, developmental pediatrician or your doctor and you can do a baseline set of labs and then have those labs repeated when your child is um, a little bit sick or under the weather and not, during well, not doing well or even during a time of regression, then you might see a difference in those labs and you have a baseline then to compare them to, which kind of goes back to then making the argument that um, when the body is physiologically stressed, you're already kind of acting on a deficit of ATP production anyway, and then you're adding additional energy demand through an illness to the body and then the body really can't keep up. So then that's when your child might be regressing or might be really tired or might be symptomatic in some other way that they might not always be. And that's when getting those labs can sometimes be very illuminating. Anybody wanna say anything about that or had experience with that?
7: I have a question. Mm -hmm. I am... Actually, and my daughter is in my lap, and we are on our way home from Mass General for having this workup done and GI scopes as well. And I'm wondering about—they drew all the blood while she was under anesthesia, and it wasn't ever something I considered. The tourniquet, the blood pressure, cough,
0: the
3: um,
7: or the or the drugs.
0: You know the anesthesia shouldn't impact the value of the labs as much as something like the blood pressure cuff and the way it was handled was uh-huh. however um they probably drew that through her iv you
3: know if if
0: she was um if she had an iv cuz she was having you know um conscious sedation um during the procedure then they probably had Uh, You know, a port where you can draw directly off the IV, which makes for a very clean sample that you actually can't really get when you just go into for outpatient labs. Um, I also would, you know, say that Mass General um, sees a lot of kids with mito and so should be pretty familiar with the handling process for that. So I think you are probably in good hands from that. Um, Anybody else have any other questions or experiences about them? Um, okay, anybody have any questions or things to, to kind of back up or clarify so far? Um, great. So, you know, if you go back to this um, bigger picture idea again, that there are these this three-pronged approach for diagnosing mitochondrial disease, symptoms and clinical presentation, biochemical and mi- metabolic testing, and molecular and histological testing, we'll talk about the molecular and histological testing first. But um, what I want to also say to you is that then the priorities for approaching testing for um, your child, if you're kind of getting into this, is making sure that the appropriate labs are ordered and that you have a plan in place and you've kind of made sure that you'll have appropriate collection and handling of the samples. It could actually be harder for you if you get these things ordered and they aren't handled properly and enough isn't ordered and the tests all come back normal or inconclusive right because then it's like well we already tested for that and it was fine anybody had that happen to them um okay you're that's great because sometimes that happens and it's like oh we already tested that it was fine and and then you're you're fighting a battle to try to go back and argue that it wasn't done properly, which can be more difficult. So just having that plan. I also feel strongly that, that it's difficult to be a parent advocate because you can't go order these tests yourself, nor can you interpret them. And so while you're working so hard to be educated and to be able to advocate for your kids, um, on the other hand, if you don't have a knowledgeable physician, an experienced physician or one who is willing to learn, who will make a follow-up appointment with you eight to ten weeks after those labs are drawn to talk about what the results are and who can interpret the results or at least have the wherewithal to recognize that they don't know the results and can't understand the results and want to um, you know, direct you back to that referral to see someone else, if you don't have that, then you actually can, um, you know, be kind of back at square one. So it's really important to try to have to get that. And does anybody, um, Alyssa and Patty in particular, because you guys have um, been through this, <coughs> have any suggestions on, you know, what to do during that process to kind of make sure that everything that you t- t- every step you take as an advocate kind of takes you in the right direction?
6: Mm, You know, it's hard. Uh, You know, we really have seen many different uh, doctors, and um, what I say is we got one good new idea from each person we saw. It was very hard for us to find one doctor who could take us from, you know, point A all the way to Z. Um, it, It took a team approach, someone who was willing to do one piece of it, someone who was willing to do another piece of it. I wish I had better news, but that that has been our experience.
4: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I'd kind of echo it and say in a different way that you would get conflicting information from different folks as well. So as a parent, you have to just parse it out and kind of, meaning some, some doctors are more opinionated or more assertive than others, and they will just outright say that that doesn't mean anything and things like that. But and another doctor might say, no, something else, so... As a parent, it was sometimes for us to kind of parse those conflicting information and kind of sometimes go with the instincts. Come sometimes talk to other parents. Sometimes read research and whatever you can do to get other information and and make the decision as to test further or go with the treatment options and things like that. And that's what is uh, is quite a bit of a challenge.
2: That's been my experience too. Even though I've been into this from a different angle. Uh, over the years, that and it and I came to it the hard way, thinking that these people were experts, and it took meeting ignorant doctor, egotistical ignorant doctor after egotistical ignorant doctor to realize that this is my life, this is my family. I really know more than they do. I'm very grateful for the little pieces each one can give. But on the whole, only one person was... And that was my actually my nutritional counselor, who knew more and more, to a large extent, because he was more open minded than all the all the MDS.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Christy, I, I think it's important to note that we
6: really are in the middle of emerging research. Um, my children were diagnosed um, in the summer of '09. And there really, even from just then, has been, you know, more people are educated, more people have heard the word mitochondrial disease, more people are beginning to hear a connection between autism and mitochondrial disease. And, you know, in some sense, although an MD may not have the answers, there is value in advocating to create a dialogue is how I look at it.
0: That's definitely true. Um, Anybody else have any comments or...
4: Yeah, and Christy, one thing that worked well for us is record keeping, and I'm sure everyone does this—having all the records, especially when you go see a, a specialist—and writing down all the chronological um, kind of clinical symptoms observed and what interventions, so that, uh, like the new doctor, so to speak, can get a good get up to speed with what what all has happened and 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 um, and what interventions have been tried and what were the effects so that usually has helped us quite a bit when we visit new doctors. I agree. I,
6: I agree Patty. We we've also had that for both of our boys. boys. It's like a chronological summary um starting like with their Billy Rubin scores and you know the first symptoms and when was he diagnosed failure to thrive and how long was he on Elicare and you know all those details that sort of create the sum of the parts um and to really keep it updated, um so that if you had an initial colonoscopy or endoscopy, and then you had a follow up that you know you have an up to date medical summary on the kids all in one place, because that is what happens, Christy, when you're moving maybe from one doctor who's a endocrine specialist to somebody who's um you know a gastroenterology is a specialist then you know, the two don't do a good job communicating. So it's good to have all the information in one place.
0: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think that um, you guys bring up a another kind of good point, which is the process for this can take a little while, and that can be tough because if you are seeing your child regressing, um, it can be really hard to just sit back and let this happen. But one of the best things you can do as an advocate is, be really organized and present the material in a way that you can um, make sense of it and help to speak the language so you can streamline the process as much as possible because it can take quite a while if you don't do that for someone to just sift through and make sense of everything you have so far.
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, what they would find if they were doing – um, molecular testing or um, histological testing um, through a muscle biopsy for the tissue or by looking at the um, genes in blood. That's kind of, I think, um, the last step, so probably not the focus of what you guys would be doing because we're talking about screening, but I feel like if you're going to have a conversation about testing, you want to know, you know, what. What ultimately gives you that diagnosis? so everything we've talked about so far, screening lab, evidence for a mitochondrial dysfunction it's evidence for to warrant further testing, but it's not diagnostic okay so when we talk about molecular testing, um, molecular testing means that you are um, testing for the genes you're looking at specific genes connect abnormalities, just like DNA analysis, and uh, we have some ways to do that now. So there are some new companies that are offering some tests that actually test specifically for um, certain genes, and so some of you might have heard of um, GeneDX or the company Medomics, and both are offering um, a wide array of genetic testing that – are looking at the specific genes, including the nuclear genes, which we feel are more common for these children um, and their kind of cause of mitochondrial disease, that are looking at those. Not completely comprehensive, but definitely huge advances than where we were even just a couple years ago. And um, if you want more information about that, you can actually find it on the website, and we'll include it in the summary as well.
4: Uh, hey, Christy, do you know if male the the male test of mutation, is that comparable or is it different from what Gene does?
0: You know, I don't know about that, um, Patty. I certainly don't. If you want to email me about it though, I can see what I can um find out.
3: <laughs>
0: Sorry, somebody's got a bad reception there, so um you can use star six to mute your phone if you're in a bad bad spot. Um Medomics, I know the most about, and they are um, very responsive to asking to answering questions from patients so i um if you have a question, I encourage you to um, you know email them right off their website and uh, David Keene from Medomics will answer your questions um, there's another Piece of genetic testing that's interesting because this has just recently been published, and that's a chromosomal microarray analysis, uh, an abbreviated CMA, um, that can be done via white blood cells. That can be that can be used to look for depletions or duplications in the um, mitochondrial um, DNA. So that's a new um, study that I think we warrant some more investigation and and review as well. Uh, Um, Excuse me, I have a
5: question on that. Yeah, go ahead. Um, When they order that, I thought they were just looking at nuclear. They're also looking at mitochondrial?
0: Um, You know, I want to actually have the study in front of me to tell you the definitive answer on that. Okay. Alyssa, do you know off the top of your head? I don't. Um, Why don't I look that up to clarify for you? Christy, that
6: brings me to another thing. Before any more people leave, could we ask for um email addresses for the list?
0: Absolutely. So um everybody we're trying to build a list so that we can send you an update when we have the summary posted and when the new section of the website's ready and to um announce other future calls. So the best thing to do is if you would please send an email real quick to autism at mitoaction.org. And just include your name, maybe a piece or two of background information, um, including where you're from, and then we'll have your email address to include to the list. So if you'll send an email to autism at mitoaction dot org. Um, sorry, I don't have the answer to your question right off the top of my head, but I certainly That's am happy okay, to take a look sons at that. my son had
5: that and it came back normal, but I thought they were just looking at nuclear.
0: Um, let me take a look at the actual study because I have the abstract, but I but I don't have the actual study in okay. front of me. Let me take a look at it, and we can clarify that for you. All right, you. Thanks. Um, so, when you talk about genetic testing versus muscle, um, sometimes we you know we were relying on muscle biopsy almost completely for so many years, but the genetic testing now is improved so much that sometimes you can catch that diagnosis and that defect without ever having to do the muscle biopsy. And so many physicians are looking to do the um, genetic screening through blood sample first and to kind of see what that brings up, looking again at that big picture to then be able to identify whether or not you need to go through with the muscle biopsy. Um, muscle biopsy is kind of a whole other conversation in and of itself, and there is some great information on MitoAction's website about muscle biopsy because this is a huge area of concern and question for everyone who has uh, mitochondrial disease. So I encourage you to um, look at that. You can t- The search box on the website it works great. So You can just put in muscle biopsy and you'll find... Um, a very good article, for example, by Fran Kendall, who's in Atlanta, who is available, by the way, to see patients who are like you guys, looking for more information about kind of what are my next steps, if I have a child who I think has those red flags, and her information is on our website as well. Um, But I direct you to do that because the muscle biopsy um, can tell us a lot of things, it's can tell us about the structure of the, um, the mitochondria and it can tell us about the number and the activity of the mitochondria. And it can also tell us specifically about the enzyme complexes that um, are part of the electron transport chain, which is where energy is actually made in the mitochondria. So you heard Patty at the beginning of the call say, oh, I'm interested in oxfos. That's oxidative phosphorylation, and that's this description of how these enzyme complexes take the food that you eat and generate ATP at a rate that is remarkable in all the cells of our body except for red blood cells and able to provide enough energy for us. So when you have a defect in one of those complexes then, or one of those enzymes, then that's an oxfos um, defect and that's a respiratory chain defect. They mean the same thing. And as a result, we can actually, with a muscle biopsy, look at the activity levels of those complexes. So if you hear somebody say, oh, I have complex 1 and complex 3 deficiency, what they're saying is that when they had a muscle biopsy, they were able to see that those enzyme complexes in the mitochondria weren't working as effectively as they should. So they're the reason that you're not getting enough ATP. Does that change what your treatment is? N- not really. Um, maybe it will in the future, and for some people having that diagnosis, you know, kind of helps you identifying the next step, but not really. Um, so, sorry, everyone, about the um, ringing, but we're Welcome about to.
8: Welcome to Verizon Wireless. The wireless customer here. you called is not available at this time. Please try your call again later. Announcement 1, switch two 8 dash one
0: Okay, that was exciting. So <laughs> Welcome
8: to Verizon Wireless. Sorry, wireless Hold on. The wireless you called is not available Can at this, call this time. The Please try your call again later. Announcement I'm just one. Gonna, um, switch gate dash one.
0: All right, everyone. I just muted everyone except me. So my apologies to mute you, but I wanted to be able to finish up without um, our background there. Apologies for that, and uh, but wanted you to know that. Um, We're going to put all of this into a summary, and I will get back on the line just a second so if anybody has any additional questions. But I wanted to encourage all of you to, you know, do what you're doing right now, which is to just start to gather information so that you can better understand what all this means and that you're not just blindly kind of looking at these tests and wondering what to do next or would be quite normal to feel overwhelmed, but really having a a stepwise approach to understanding this, all with the hopes that you can – do better for your kids and that you can help them so that they are making progress and they're not regressing and that their symptoms are better managed and that it all makes better sense. So let me switch back over and see if we have any questions, but I'll apologize in advance if we have that background noise because it might cut us short. We'll ask you again if you'd like to be part of our mailing list to send an email to autism at mitoaction.org so we can be sure to include you and keep you updated as we update the website as well. So, here we go. Let's see how we our... are. All right. Maybe that's um, better there. So, anybody have any final questions or comments? Yeah, I have a question. Go ahead. Um, I was wondering if anybody on this group has um, experience having done uh, genetic testing with transgenomics. Um, that's um, where my doctor ordered um, some of the mito testing from. Um, So that's a great question. I I don't have right in front of me the specific information from transgenomics, but I have heard a lot of patients and doctors using transgenomics and having um, similar experiences to using um, Medomics or GeneDx. So I don't think you have gone wrong by using them at all. Okay, great. And then I wanted to find out if, you know, in terms of treatment,
5: I heard you say something
6: about... The, this testing doesn't really change anything because it's going to cost us, even with insurance coverage, these tests cost about $10,000 and even with insurance coverage, it's going to cost us about two to $3,000. Is, um, is this for so the transgenomic? That's correct. Mm. Well, we we did have some transgenomic testing done and it was kind of inconclusive. It didn't help us in any way. It's interesting because I, 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 my two boys right now have um, tests with Medomics, which is kind of like the latest testing that they talked about at the United Mitochondrial Disease Foundation, and the testing is mm-hmm. very, very expensive. The test is fifteen thousand nine hundred dollars per child. Right. So it, it, it really, it does, um, Christy, start a conversation about is the information gained worth the financial burden for some of these families?
0: Um, you know, I think that it depends on what you're able to do without that diagnosis. Um, the hard part is that for some people, um, maybe you don't personally need the diagnosis, but you can't get insurance coverage for compounding the mitococktail unless you have something, you know. Um, or you can't get, uh, if you don't have a diagnosis, then you're not going to be able to get the proper placements for your child's IEP at school. And so then you really need that. So how far do you need to go to get that diagnosis? And that's that's what's really tough here is that if you have a lot of the red flags and a lot of the metabolic screening labs are abnormal, then because these other tests are available, many physicians are hesitant to just say, oh, looks like mito, smells like mito, let's call it mito, because now they can definitively find out. Years ago, maybe they weren't needing to definitively find out there are many patients out there who have a suspected diagnosis because they you know it looks like mito it smells like mito so it must be mito and we don't really and we don't really need to know exactly what it is because we're still going to put you on a mito cocktail and we're still going to recommend that you kind of, you know, follow uh, anesthesia protocol and you avoid a fever and you stay well hydrated and you pace yourself with energy conservation. So do those things, and that's the best that we can offer. Now that we can identify some of that genetics, then it raises a whole other issue of really having to know exactly what the right answer is. Um, But sometimes when I I say also that, you know, how much will it change your treatment – Knowing whether or not you have mitochondrial disorder, that does change your treatment. But knowing specifically whether you have a complex one defect, for example, um, in, in my experience with the patients, has not dramatically affected what their treatment is because you could line up everybody who has a complex one defect and none of them would look alike. So then it goes back to managing those symptoms that are um, most apparent or most troublesome for each individual.
6: Well, and I think what you're really saying, Christy, is that there's a clinical diagnosis and then there's a genetic diagnosis. True. And, you know, certain MDs are more lenient in giving clinical diagnoses, and some are still really very old school in saying
0: the only hard science is the muscle biopsy. There's still that attitude out there. Um, you know, there's one other thing that's, that's happening that um, is new also, and that's using a cheek swab, also called a buccal swab analysis. And so um, there have been some families who have been able to get this done because it is still under a research protocol, from what I understand. But it can look at some some of the um, enzyme deficiencies as well as mitochondrial DNA mutations. And uh, so that. That could be useful as well because that's again non-invasive but telling us more information. That's that's I think where all this testing we hope will be going is that then muscle biopsies are not as necessary because they are so costly and invasive.
2: And where can that be accessed?
0: Um, right now, there's one person that um, that I'm aware of who's really doing the buckle or cheek swab analysis, and that's Dr. Goldenthal. Um, at Drexel University College of Medicine. So it's spelled just like it sounds Golden Thal. What other closing questions or comments do you guys have?
1: Well, I just want to say thank you. I've got to leave to go pick up my son, but I really wanted to say thank you for all the information. It is very helpful. But, again, I just wanted to step on and say thank you and
0: well, um, David, I hope that it was really helpful for you. And um,
1: well, I've got two pages of notes, so whether or not it's helpful or not, I'll digest it all tonight, and then I'll figure out what's helpful, what's not, and erase and go ahead and scratch through again.
0: All right. Well, you know, you're gathering information, so I, I hope that this clarified some things that were still kind of looming for you. So It thanks. did, and
1: I also sent that email on so I can get the uh, whatever you send out, so you'll have that as well. Perfect. Great. Thanks, Dave. Okay, thank, thank you, you very so much. much. You guys all have right. a good day.
5: I wanted to say thank you as well, but I was also curious as to how the – or what improvements you've seen since the diagnosis of your son and treatment, I'm guessing, or with the Mito cocktail. Um, You know, can you kind of give us a before and after?
6: Sure. Um, I have two children who are clinically diagnosed by a geneticist from the Cleveland Clinic. And – we started locally, and the local geneticist put him on two things Carnotaur, Rx levocarnitine, um, and also a medication called Leucovorin Calcium, which is an Rx uh, folinic acid medication. And for our son, who um, presented as, as a metabolic baby right from the very beginning, but then had an older sibling who was at that moment sort of cascading off into autistic symptoms. Um, he really created the roadmap for his older brother. Um, and so um, level carnitine was very helpful for tone, um, motor improvements, and um, the leucovorin calcium was critical for receptive language. And then um, in terms of getting his older brother onto the cocktail as well, we saw similar sorts of motor improvements on the carnitine, um, For my older son, um, the leucovore calcium was too much medication for him, and so instead he's on an over-the-counter folate, but folate has been really critical for them. And um, the other supplement that they've been on that's really been life-changing for them has been creatine monohydrate and um you know this was kind of the final piece that mm-hmm. motor in coordination piece that we couldn't make any sense of uh, in my mm-hmm. older son and for my younger son um he had a dramatic expressive language okay. boost with creatine monohydrate and i know some um ASD mito children who had a similar response to adding creatine and getting language finally so you know for us I'm not I I'm, our boys would be lost to us without the cocktail. They really were very dramatic uh cocktail responders. That's not everybody's experience unfortunately, but that is what has motivated our family to become involved in outreach. And um you know, I just want to say, you know, if you're working with um somebody on the cocktail, are you with a biomed doctor or a developmental pediatrician or neuro or do you have a team of people yet?
5: me i've I've given up on my team uh.
3: Um,
5: uh i mean i I could go to my pediatrician at this point um and she would do just about whatever
3: mm-hmm.
5: um but I, I don't know if I trust her to do it um i I know that the group down in Houston has uh pediatricians i guess developmental and uh pediatric neurologists that are versed in uh, mitochondrial disease, and I would almost rather wait before I let somebody else stick him. He's kind of been everybody's favorite pincushion since he's been born, and I just um you know I just don't want him stuck again unless I know what unless I'm sure that they know what they're doing and I know a lot of folks have been able to get away with Dan doctors, but my son spent probably a third of his life in the hospital and has a lot of other major medical stuff going on with him, and it's kind of beyond. Have- what a doctor can do.
6: Have you heard of Dr. Fran Kendall in Atlanta? Have you heard her name?
5: Um, I saw her on the website.
6: Yeah, I mean, based on what you're telling me, I would say she would be a good person for you to reach out to. If you're not able to travel, she'll do a virtual appointment, and then your pediatrician could order uh, local labs. Um, She's a wonderful resource. She's very knowledgeable about metabolic and genetic the genetic piece of this as well as, you know, the cocktail components. And so that really may be your best bet if you don't have an, a local provider, but you have a local pediatrician would, who would basically act in consult with her.
5: Yeah, she'll do whatever. She just doesn't, you know, know about it. Um, okay, I will give her a call then. I appreciate that. You,
6: you know, know, and if if you, <laughs> and if you do, be sure to tell her that you tuned into the Mito Action ASD
0: meeting and got her name from us. A... Sure, absolutely. Um, and Dr. Koenig at, in Houston um,
2: mm-hmm.
0: is also another great resource close to you.
2: K O E N I G.
0: I, See, I, I, um, one of
5: her partners there is uh, Dr. Fry. And it said, you know, where it list all the doctors' interest, and it said that he was actually interested in autistic spectrum disorder, and I didn't see that under Dr. You said her name's Koenig? It's K-O-E-N-I-G. Right. Mm-hmm.
3: I mean.
5: And I've just had so many doctors just kind of dismiss him as, oh, well, he's autistic, and, you know, miss the fact that he had acute pancreatitis because he was autistic, miss the fact that he had a collapsed lung because he was autistic, and I just don't want him written off again. So I was you know I was going to wait until I could see Fry but if you I mean do you have firsthand experience that she's dealt with spectrum kids and she
6: she has a sincere interest in bridging the two communities that's what i can say um she's actively becoming involved in advocacy for this cohort of kids who she really feels like have been dismissed and marginalized
3: okay. um okay. and
6: she plans to um lecture at Autism 1 um,
3: okay,
6: you know, um, Dr. Fry is also an excellent choice for you if you're near there um, because clearly he's going to have, uh, you know, the perspective of the ASD parent and child in the forefront of his mind. So I don't think you could go wrong with either of those two.
3: Okay, okay.
5: Thank you. I appreciate
4: it. And and I'll just add to that. I, I don't know your name. Oh, the, yeah. The, um, um Yeah. And... Um, that autism is probably you want to stay away from it if you can when talking to doctors. And, um,
3: I just, I,
5: I, yeah, but it's just kind of um, it's the elephant in the room,
4: you know. Yeah, I know. <laughs> and so, so if if autism is a diagnosis and there is a metabolic diagnosis, so what do you meaning what helps at least for us? is when we talk about just the metabolic aspects. Autism right. or autistic symptoms or development delays just being clinical other issues, but we're just talking about metabolic and stay metabolic so to speak. So sometimes at least for some of the talking to some of the doctors. Okay. That, okay. that
5: might help. Okay. Thank you.
6: Beth, have you had any baseline labs come back suggestive?
5: Um I they've had he's had a couple of uh Uh, comprehensive metabolic channels, and everything that I've been told is um, okay. And he's had the microarray done, and that came back normal. Um, But I was under the impression that it was just nuclear, so I was wondering about uh, mitochondrial. And, um, you know, also on the website I saw that there can be um, you know, mitochondrial issues in some tissues or some cells, and not necessarily other cells. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um. So I'm wondering if maybe that might be something that has going on. Um. But you know, I pulled up one of uh some lab work that I had um, done on him about two years ago, and his uh, his urine alanine is like through the roof. Yeah,
6: that's that that is something that my son has that as well.
0: That's a that's. Like a, a red flag.
6: That's a red flag. And, you know, I mean, what you're saying, um, you know, makes me think that maybe Dr. Kendall's a good person for you to see because she very much believes that you can have um, basically normal biochemical blood tests, but that doesn't rule out mitochondrial disease. I mean, she's very specific about that, that she really wants to, you know, delve into things. But elevated alanine is a marker.
3: Okay.
5: Okay. I appreciate the pep talk, everyone. Thank you.
6: <laughs> well, it's important to get to the right doctor. We've all been in that position. So I'm hopeful that, you know, she'd be able to, to you know, better counsel you. Okay. Thanks. You know, and certainly, you know, Christy said it before in terms of, like, starting cocktail components. Were, were you the one who had said you started carnitine?
5: Yes, and um, the difference has been profound.
6: Well, I mean that's and another. It's not
5: a prescription. It's just Clear Labs. It's the cleanest thing I could get. that's not a script, but R-
6: right. But that that gives you a clue, right? You're you're on the right track to yeah, better it, care. It,
5: finally I feel like um, that was working.
6: But, I mean, if you start researching any of the mitococktail components, it's very important, like, for example, my boys are on creatine monohydrate, Mm -hmm. that you not use an over-the-counter supplement because they can be toxic to children. And creatine monohydrate is one of the supplements that you really need to monitor liver and kidney function. Like, Mm -hmm. does your child have any elevated AST, ALT labs, or elevated bun? Um, things like that would be a marker that you'd want to pay attention to and, and not start something on your own and really get a physician That's, to... Is um, that
5: also true with the carnitine?
6: What specifically about the carnitine?
5: Um, it's, am I jeopardizing his health by putting him on a, a non-prescription carnitine? Are you familiar with Clara Labs?
6: Yes. Sarah? hmm Yeah, we're on a lot of over-the-counter supplements as well. I mean, that's a nice, it's it's a very clean brand, Right. pure encapsulations. Um, You know, I'm not a doctor. I'm just a mom. (laughs) But, you know, in general, Cleveland Clinic is recommending people be put on carnitine as an antioxidant. Not so much just because you have low levels of carnitine, but because it's an excellent antioxidant. Um, And so it doesn't seem to have the same inherent risks of other things.
5: Okay. Well, we'll hold off with the B-complex and carnitine until we talk to um, Dr. Kendall, or maybe we can get um, uh, K-Nag, I believe that's how you say it, in Houston to see us sooner than August.
6: But I also don't want to encourage you to... Stop giving him over-the-counter carnitine if you're seeing a response.
5: No, no, no. I'm I'm not. That's going to be hard to persuade me to.
6: Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm a mom too, and I always think about that first, right? It's about getting them healthier, keeping them more healthy.
3: Right,
6: right. Making up those developmental deficits.
5: Absolutely. A lot but that
6: but that's a clue for you, right? That he's doing better on the over-the-counter supplement, and so, yes. you know. There have been a lot of anecdotal accounts of children doing tremendously better on Rx levocarnitine than over-the-counter supplements. So that's very exciting to think that if you go to Dr. Kendall and she agrees that this is a metabolic problem in your son, if she were to put him on that, you might see even greater gains.
0: Okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. So, everyone, we're going to wrap up. Um Great call today. Thank you so much for everyone calling in and contributing and um continuing to be a part of this group. Um, so please send us your email address if you haven't already autism at mitoaction dot org um so that we can keep you abreast of when we get our new section of the website on Autism and Mito up and on next month's call as well um, There are other podcasts that I encourage you guys to listen to also that are of speakers about different topics of mitochondrial disease that you can browse through, and if you have an iPod, you can you know, download them and take them to go, or you can listen to them right on your computer um, off the website that give you some great information, just in getting more versed in this as well. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out to me as well. If I can help you, um, or Alyssa, you can reach both of us via that autism at mitoaction dot org email address. Um, so, Alyssa, any other closing comments?
6: Uh, I don't think so. Just that we'll, you know, we'll send out a link inviting everybody to the
0: page when we get everything up. Perfect. All right, everyone. So, thank you so much. I hope that this was helpful for you, and uh, have a have a great rest of the week. Thank you. Take care. And bye bye.